Welcome back to the Black Lives Texas podcast, a project from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. We are your hosts, I'm Ricardo Lowe. And I'm Tracy Lowe. We're diving back into our series focusing on the Black middle class. Today's episode will discuss suburbanization and education. We'll talk about how school choices, neighborhoods, gentrification, and class status affect Black families in Central Texas. Joining us today is Autumn Marnett and Natasha Daniels, both of whom have children enrolled in schools in Central Texas, and they both do forms of advocacy work to support Black students. So I've actually known Natasha since I was a teenager. She and my big sister were good friends growing up, and now we live in the same area of Central Texas. Both of us have school-age kids, and Natasha does incredible work engaging Black parents in Round Rock. Autumn was a parent we met at a community discussion hosted by Oprah, and we knew after that first meeting that she had great insights into the community in and around Austin. We are so excited to share this conversation with Autumn and Natasha, who have so much professional and personal experience in diversity and education. All right, so Ricky's already done a slight introduction, but we will provide you with the opportunities to introduce yourselves and then also to tell us a bit about who you are, such as where you grew up, what you do, and what inspires your commitment to public education. So either one of you can start. Hi, I'm Autumn Arnett. I grew up right outside of D.C., whole family full of Washingtonians, as many generations back as I can trace. Um, and I always start with that now, like because I am learning that that is actually a part of my identity, right? Like actually my personality and my perspectives are very much colored by that experience of growing up in Chocolate City um, and Amy Zion Church and then going to a historically black college. So I always start with that framing these days because uh, I would not have thought those things identified me, but they do. My commitment to public education, I actually wanted to be Michael Wilbon when I grew up. I wanted to be a sports writer uh, and talk about football all day. And then I had these children who were coming of school age, right? And so then I became, I mean, I've always loved research and I've always loved, been interested in policy. Um, but when I had children myself and was navigating the different types of schools and school decisions and like even situations like in kindergarten. So I've always worked my children two years ahead at home. In kindergarten, we had conflict because my daughter wouldn't color the bear brown because she was like, this is beneath me, right? Like, so kind of navigating with my own children is I think what sparked my interest in public education and also recognition that we were in what are considered like the top school districts, right? The top public school districts, but recognizing that there were parents of children who looked like mine who were having uh, even worse experiences and not having anybody to advocate for them. So who I am and how I got here. I'm Natasha Daniels, and I'm a mom of three children. I grew up in um, South Georgia. Uh, my, my dad was in the military. He's in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot. But the my mom was, like, really adamant that we stay in one spot for a while. And that happened to be in Valdosta, Georgia, which is, like, this small town. Um, and I identify with what you said, Autumn, about that being, I like, part of my identity because it was there that I got exposed to the throes of the most racist situations and it opened my eyes to to what was really going on like I didn't have the words for what was going on I didn't know that I was looking at institutional racism but I was experiencing it and it was easier for me to frame that as I got older to know like oh this is what it looks like because I've been in it um and um, I also, my, my parents were of the mindset of, you've made it when you're in the suburbs, when you go to private school, like your kids are in private school, right? So we were put into these situations where we were always the only black kids in the room, right? Like I didn't have that experience where Autumn, you know, where we grew up in Chocolate City. Like I'm jealous <laughs> that you had that, right? Because um, I did grow up in, in places where um, being the only person in the room, only person of color in the room was isolating and nobody hid that they didn't want you there. Teachers didn't hide that they didn't want you there. Um, and I mean, I was constantly kicked out of, out of class and I graduated with honors. So, um, I, I think that's part of the reason why I'm here is that now that I am a parent and also an educator, like 
striding that line of being a parent and in the system, it's it's hard. Um, it's it's a hard place to navigate because you know what you want for your kids, but you have to go about it a certain way because retaliation is real. And that that being a, a part of Round Rock Black Parents Association, I feel like being an educator, I have a lot to offer and like show other parents like, hey, this is going on and you don't know to ask for this, but you need to, because no one's going to tell you. It's like an unspoken rule and of, you know, white suburbia. And and we need to know these things like because we deserve the same access. So really, that's that's why I'm here. Natasha, you're coming from Valdosta, Georgia, and Autumn, you're coming from Washington, D.C. So now I'm wondering, like, what factors led into your decision to move to the suburban cities of Austin as opposed to moving to the central city itself? So for me, I was between my daughter was going to go into middle school and it was kind of a moment of like, we're either going to stay here forever here like uh, we were in Maryland at the time or we're going to go right now. Right. Because once she goes through middle school and makes friends, you kind of got to let her go to high school where she is. And I was between Austin and Tampa uh, just because I wanted warmer weather and lower cost of living and um, in theory, no more winter, which this year made a joke out of me. But I chose Austin because Austin felt like it was going to be less Texas and Tampa was still very Florida politically, if that makes sense. Um, And then once I chose Austin and realized that there were only 8% at the time, Black people in like the entire area. I was like, I can't move these children from a place where everybody looks like them to a place where nobody looks like them. So then it became like researching where do all the Black people live in Austin, right? Like what are the the Black middle-class suburbs? Where can we find community? And found that Pflugerville had the highest number and fastest growing at the time population. So mine was actually like, it feels like the opposite of you know, how do you choose to move to the suburbs, right? Like I was looking for the blackest experience I could find based on numbers and research in a city that didn't have the population to support it. And then the the things that go into suburbia are, you know, you get a yard where you don't necessarily get one in the city. And um, I don't think my property taxes are any lower because it's still Travis County, but um, in theory, you get access to better schools, those are the, the things that normally go into suburbia. But for me, it was like needing to find Black community in a place where there wasn't a lot of it. And um, I used to live in East Austin um, for, I mean, it wasn't very long, but it's crazy because I look, I look now, I think about Mueller was just being built and I was looking at buying a house in Mueller. Right. Dumb mistake for not doing that because I could have sold it. But, um, oh, but I, this- right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, but I I chose uh, the suburbs because, number one, it was affordable. I could do the property taxes. At the time, I was a single mom, um, a single black mom with a black child. And I was like, where can I go? Like, where can I afford to live? And I know I want to buy a house. And um, so we initially moved to Hutto and then and then moved to Round Rock. And um, and I chose Round Rock because I worked there, like I was working in Round Rock and I was like, well, you know, I feel like I can navigate this system better because I'm in it um, for my kids. And that's, that's really what I was thinking was, I know the schools, I know principals, I know who's saying what, where, when, and how. And I feel like that's the best place for me to position myself. And, and I also feel like I kind of bought into that same, um, I don't know, mentality that my parents had where, you know, you've made it, right? White picket fence, dog, 2.5 children, right? Like I, I bought into that mentality at a young age, not recognizing the impact that was going to have, like knowing that like when you dig deeper, you're like, you're in this paradox, right? Like you're targeted because there's so few of you and it's like this spotlight is on you in, this, in the suburbs. And I didn't think of that. It's so interesting that you've brought up like more than one time this idea of needing the like needing the insider secrets to navigate the place, right? Uh, both in Valdosta and in Round Rock. And that's something that I'm just starting to think about. I mean, I, I tell people, I joke all the time that for us at home, the city is rapidly gentrifying. And so we're learning how to like 
accept white people who walk their dogs across Howard's campus. Like we're learning how to like not pop off about things like that. And here I feel like we're constantly, we're, I feel like I'm constantly in a position where I am, uh, I will not ever like beg somebody to accept me, but where like it's the reverse, right? So I feel like it's a really interesting dynamic shift where like I sit on Pflugerville's equity commission and to me, things that are like very basic conversations are actual conversations. Like, yeah, what? Like, this isn't, this isn't hard. But it's interesting to hear you say that that is a thing that is top of mind for you, like at every step. So you all have listed more than a few factors and reasons why you moved to suburban cities. Um, And uh, both of you mentioned education in terms of your child or your children. So what are some of the expectations that you have for the child's school that you place them in um, before coming into this? And how have they actually matched up to your realities? And either one of you can answer or feel free to chime in however you like. I've been pretty fortunate that my kids have had a a pretty decent experience. And a part of that is I kind of did what Autumn did in, yes, I knew I was moving to Round Rock, but I knew I wanted to be on the east side of Round Rock. And I knew, like I knew my, my dad is a doctor, my mom's a nurse practitioner. So we grew up in a space where I think there was one black lady in our neighborhood down the street. That's it. And, uh, that's yeah, that, that was it. And I knew that I didn't want to grow up that way. So um, I made sure that when we were looking at houses, I was peeking around to be like, who's on their bicycle? Like, and mm-hmm. I saw like when I came into this neighborhood, I saw Muslim kids. I saw like it was like a rainbow coat. And I was like, this is it. This is this is where we're going because I need like I need to make sure that my kids are surrounded by everybody. And um, my husband really wanted to move to the West, like Westwood area. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that to my babies. And um, I think because of that, they have had a better experience because um, from my experience as an educator, Title I schools have some of the best educators, like, oh my gosh, like the talent that is there. And um I, my kids went to a Title I school and I knew they were going to a Title I school and I had no qualms about it. And um, I think um, I, I think we were very fortunate that so far we've, we've escaped relatively unscathed. I say relatively because we've had our issues, like, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I think I tried to have some conversations with their elementary principal about equity and that was not received well. And mm-hmm. it was, disturbing to me because um, you're leading this campus full of black and brown children and you don't want to acknowledge that there are always black boys in the front office that you know that your dual language program has no black kids in it like you don't you don't want to talk about systems and like I just I felt I felt some type of way about that so um I think also in my view as an educator, um, I say also relatively unscathed because every day I see what happens and I see, I've seen some traumatic stuff go down and I, I feel bad like weighting my experience against that. Like we shouldn't have to deal with any of the things, right? Any of the microaggressions, any of the, the small things that happen, but um, those huge egregious things have not happened to us. So I start all decisions with data, right? And um, did not have the opportunity to extensively go through neighborhoods. Like my son and I came down on a weekend and looked for houses. And that gave me enough to be able to tell my realtor, like, this is what I absolutely must have. This is what absolutely cannot happen. So I didn't get to do like the neighborhood scouting as much. uh, Because a lot of it was like FaceTime showings for me. Um, And so I ended up like pulling the data on the school verticals, right? I pulled the discipline data to see how much more black kids are being suspended than white kids. I pulled the gifted and talented data to see like how proportionate to your population is your GT population, right? I pulled all of those types of things um, to give me a sense of how my black children would be treated in these schools. Also, frankly, was very afraid of Texas, right? It was very, like my grandparents still pay so much more attention, I think, to Texas news than they do to Maryland news. Like every time there's a book ban issue or an African-American history class issue, they're like, 
where do you have my great grandchildren? What's going on down <laughs> in Texas, right? Like they're still like, pack it up and come home. Um, but I think that that allowed me, so that allowed me to pick a vertical group for my children that um, where I really, really loved the middle school. I was really in love with the, from the data, the leadership uh, of the middle school. And that experience has translated. I really, really love um, Park Crest and the principals at Clypus over there. Um, in elementary school, the data looked like, mm, but my son was gonna be in fourth grade and I was only gonna have to do it for two years. So I was gonna take the L because I wanted him to go to this middle school and the high school as well. And that has been consistent with my experience. We, I feel like we took an L in elementary school. Um, <clears throat> luckily though, and this is another factor, my son is like the resilient, or they're both resilient, but my son is the one that like, will let things roll off his back. He's the one that really wants you to like him and be happy and pleased with him. And so if you, if he experiences a microaggression, he'll wake up tomorrow happy and give you another chance, right? My daughter, the first time you mess up with her, you lose her. Like, there's no coming back. So I felt like if, and this is not, it's going to sound bad to say, but I felt like if either of my children could handle a school where I was going to take a little bit of an L, it was going to be the one who was going to get straight A's regardless, right? Like, he was going to do what he was supposed to do regardless of what people around him did. Um, and we had an incident last February. Not an incident. It wasn't an incident. My child genuinely was like, hey, it's February 5th. What are we doing for Black History Month? I haven't heard anything. And the teacher was like, yeah, we're not doing anything. And my son came home and was like, mom, she said we're not doing anything. And I was like, surely she didn't mean that. Surely she meant like, and if she meant it, surely you asking the question now meant today is February 5th and she's going to get it together, right? I'm going to give her until next Friday's weekly newsletter to say something about Black History Month. Sure enough, the next week comes and we've got Chinese New Year or something, but it, but still no Black History Month, right? Wow. And I was like, this child, this child told you what he wanted to learn. Like he legitimately is not confrontational, right? He was just like, we not even getting MLK this year? <laughs> What's up with this? And so, <laughs> not even MLK. Not even MLK, no Rosa wow. Parks. Like, it's a basic list, right? And so basic, I, right? <laughs> I emailed the principal and was like, hey, and copied the teacher. I emailed the teacher and copied the principal. I don't remember who was the copier, but both of them were on email. And I was like, hey, son came home, told me about this conversation. Surely I thought that maybe you hadn't gotten to it, but now we're in week two and you still haven't gotten, like neither one of you has sent home a newsletter that includes any mention of Black History Month. How can I help, right? Like, let me know how I can help you. I've done some work around helping with culturally responsive curriculum. I can do this. Principal responds and connects me to the one black counselor in the school. It's like, oh, we have an equity commission. Here's our, our committee. Here's our equity committee person. Like she can help you with this. And in my head, I was like, I'm not confrontational. I came at you like, how can I help? You put me off on the one black counselor who's never even met my child, right? So the counselor emails me. She's like, hey, I'm the younger grades counselor. I actually don't know your kid. I actually didn't even know we had an equity committee. But let's see what we can do, right? Like, so I was like, but I mean, there's been, there hasn't been an incident where, you know, my child was um, directly a victim of racism or anything. But these little things where my children are used to seeing themselves affirmed and not having that. Um, but that, again, that was consistent with what the data told me, right? The data told me that these children were a priority um, and not that they were mistreated, but that they weren't a priority at the school. I've had conversations all the way up to the superintendent and the board of trustees and get the same sense from them um, that they are just not a super priority. But on the other side, again, the school that was the anchor for us moving to the district, because I felt like middle school was going to be like a really pivotal time for kids trying to figure out things, life. Um, I've been super, super pleased. Uh, and I actually have had, had, have had conversations with a friend of mine who's in a different vertical group that on the great schools rating rates higher because Natasha, to your point, like our schools are title one schools and he's constantly like, we have these issues and I don't know what to do. And I got to pull my kids out. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, the data told me that. Like I picked my house based on <laughs> the data telling me the disparity, like, yes, all of that is supported. And uh, so I think it's, I've been telling every parent who asks any question in the black moms ATX group and all of the groups, like these are the data sets you want to look at when you're trying to figure out where you want to live. 
don't look at like the overall A school rating, right? That doesn't tell you how your child is going to be treated. Look at these disparities. Let me know if I can help you, if I can pull data for you and help you think about like what this means for you. I am here just because I just feel like being able to make a decision only on numbers gave me such a good picture into what the actual experience is going to be. And it's been um, confirmed as we've gone. So, Right. So a lot of it, you were able to anticipate, like yeah. your expectations were already, you already knew what they were going to be because you looked at the data and you were able to preface that before you made that move. Yeah. You said something interesting about the Black History Month thing. So they didn't even have MLK in there. Um, they didn't have nothing. <laughs> so um, from my understanding, is this, is this the situation where you created a curriculum? Can you talk about the process of how you created that curriculum? And can you also talk about the additional labor that Black parents have to go through so that they can do these type of things? Like you had to take time out of your life. And, and it's not you know, a bad thing, but in a way, I'm wondering if white parents have to go through the same type of labor that you had to go through so that you can create a curriculum for them to be more cognizant about what they were missing out on? I feel like most parents, myself included in a normal year, are not creating whole curricula for their children. Like I, I feel like that's a very extreme example. Um, and it really was a couple of parents I knew came to me and were like, and a couple of educators came, were like, hey, can you help me think of like what I can do for my kids for Black History Month because they're not getting anything? And I thought about the experience that we had last year and was like, okay, you know what? My children can do this too. Your children, my children. So uh, my play niece here is five. So I was like, let me do it for, make sure it extends down to five uh, and make sure it goes up to high school. If I'm already having to do elementary, middle, and uh, she's a young five, so she's in pre-K, then let's just go all the way through, right? And I'll find 28 people and do some research and put together easy to read lessons and try to tie them together. Um, I feel like that was very, very extreme. But I feel like Black parents do have this additional burden. We talk a lot, and this goes to your class question conversation earlier, too. Um, we talk a lot about knowing that we have to either unschool or supplement school for our children regardless, right? Like, you, they could go to the best schools in the best cities where there aren't the incidents and you still as black parents have to supplement you're still looking for enrichment programs in the summer and over the spring break and you're still having to uh, have your children read additional books that weren't required reading i think this is also a bit of not i think i know firsthand that this is a bit of what upper middle class white families do too they also expose their children to like extracurriculars and programs that are going to make them look more competitive on college campuses right but for us, it is that if we don't do it, they won't get it. So for them, like if your child doesn't do equestrian, they can still go to college probably, right? Like if you don't have the SAT prep courses for your children as a white parent and you're middle class, you're, the cultural references on the SAT are still, your child is still probably fine. For us, if we don't do it, our children won't be fine. And I think a lot about one of the things that I really wanna do is to be able to create a free SAT prep class for black students. Sometimes I say black and brown. Um, I feel like I don't have to pretend for y'all that like black students are not my primary focus. I have black children, so I can support other people, but I focus mostly on black children. Um, but I wanna create a free SAT prep program because so much of it is strategy, right? Like it's not even that they're smarter than you or they know things you don't know. It's test taking strategy. And I feel like cost is such a barrier for us all the time. Uh, a lot of the things I think about are how can I create these things that I want my children to have anyway that I can pay for for my children for other black parents who either a don't know that they need to do these things right Natasha what you were talking about like you don't know that you have to ask for this and you don't know that there are extra things that you have to do like you think that if your child just goes through high school they're going to be fine and ready for college but maybe they're not right like so try, how can I figure out how to do these things that I know because of the things that I've been exposed to and the things that I've uh, learned and done and experienced myself give students an advantage? How can I create them free for students whose parents don't know that they need to do these things too? I spent a whole lot of time thinking about that and thinking about not only how to create them, but then how to convince parents that their children need to show up for them, right? Like, you gotta get here. I put in all this work to get this money so we can do this for free, but like, come get it. I wanted to speak to that last piece where you said, you've got to come get it. Like, that's, that's the biggest 
piece for us, like in Round Knock Black Parents is like, um, and I guess we're still trying to figure that out, like how to increase the access to people who, who may not have the time, like, I mean, there's all kinds of barriers. I can't assume to know why, but, but getting that access there, because like we can provide it, but you still got to come. That's, that's a hard barrier. Right, right. We have a question about sacrifices and what are the sacrifices made by choosing a suburban school over a school in a central city? But I, 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 and this is for both of you, but Autumn, I'm particularly interested because you are moving from Chocolate City to an Austin. And even though you have a, a Round Rock and a Pflugerville and like a, the space that's as Black as you can get it, what do you feel are some of the sacrifices that you've made by just kind of moving your children from a space that's full of people that look like them to spaces that you have to kind of navigate? Like what, what is the, the Blackest experience that I can get? The experiences my children are having, I think are very similar to the experiences that I'm having as an adult. And so some of it is, like for me, I've never had to convince black people that Black Lives Matter is not a political statement, right? Until this year. Like I've never had to convince, I have met black folks who didn't have the time or didn't have like the luxury of thought to sit around and think about how things were affecting them. But I've never met black people who told me to leave them alone or uh, that they weren't problems or that they were okay because somebody else had it worse. And I feel like I have a lot of those conversations now here. Um, and I, but I also feel like there are a lot of people who are having conversations, but I sometimes get frustrated with the fact that I feel like at home, like here, I think we're in an acknowledging space in a lot of the conversations that I have with the schools and uh, the districts. And I feel like we should be a decade past acknowledgement and on to like, what are the solutions and what do we do about it, right? So I get really frustrated about acknowledgement. I think the children and I both struggle to meet people that we like here, or, or not like, but like feel like we can relate to. Um, because I felt like if we could just meet all of the black people who lived here, then we would be okay. And understanding that like, we have different experiences and different perspectives and so, uh, now we gotta cut down, cause obviously like you would do it in any place, right? Like obviously not everybody in the place is gonna be your people. Um, but here I'm having a harder time. Like my children have like two friends each and they're children that are like used to liking people but they're having a hard time meeting people that they feel like they can relate to in a sense of like, we have these shared experiences. Um, so we were on a, we had a team panel last week that my daughter was on and each of the kids were talking about kind of microaggressions that they had experienced or, or little things. And my kids were like, can't relate. I don't know nothing about that. I don't know anything about these racist incidents. I mean, we hear our mama talk about them, we guess, but like, or my daughter in particular, not, not my son, he wasn't old enough. But so I think that for me, the trade-off has been kind of, well, the positive side though, is I feel like uh, in the city, kids grow up much faster than they do in the suburbs. And I, I try to couch my language because I do a lot of work around the adultification of black kids, but I feel like my kids get to be kids here. Like they get to be 13 and 10. Um, I feel like they, I've watched them like blossom into themselves a little bit better without like the pressures of, uh, maybe some of it was family and some of it was like city and some of it was, you know, like the things that are going on. I feel like it is a healthier environment Part of this could be because we've been like home and they're not out with other people, right? Like they also have my attention all the time now. Um, but the trade-offs definitely feel like to me, you lose that sense of community and you lose the sense of like all your neighbors, like Natasha said, like you can go outside and ride your bike and all the kids that you're riding bikes with, like y'all kind of roll together here. It's like, eh, is this person my friend? I don't know. I'll touch my hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> How about your experiences, Natasha? Is it, is it similar, especially coming from Valdosta? I kind of want to go back and hit on something Autumn said about um, explaining to Black people that they're, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because even, even within like these circles, like when, when we are doing our advocacy work as Round Rock Black parents, some parents are just like, well, we're not going to rock the boat because we're fine. My kids are fine even though your kids are not fine because I'm in these schools watching your children not be fine. 
but you think that because no one's making phone calls home, your parents, your kids aren't complaining, you know, that such and such is happening in school because they're so used to it, right? They're used to Title VI violations happening every day. Um, that that you think that you're fine, you don't want to rock the boat. And I also kind of want to speak to the system of retaliation that exists in these suburb schools, suburban schools. Jesus, mm. they uh, they make you feel like they hold the power, like you're not a taxpayer, like you didn't birth these children out to send them into these schools. Like they make they make you feel crazy. And um, I kind I just wanted to hit on that because that's that's super important. Like the the mentality. Um, that you come across here that that um, I'd say yeah, even in Valdosta it was the same thing because that city was majority black but in the south there's this I don't know at least in that city there's this it's like all the black people are in service positions it's like it's this oppressed oppression and you've been oppressed so long like I grew up across the street from a cotton field, right? Like you, you see it and it's like, that's the water you're swimming in. And you're just like, okay, this is my position. Like there, the fight is, I don't know. The fight has been, I guess, oppressed out of you, but I'm not saying it doesn't exist there, but that's what I witnessed growing up. Um, I feel like, um, yes, I, I, I feel like I have made some sacrifices coming to suburban schools, like knowing I was going into this, um, this situation where not everybody's going to want to rock the boat like I want to rock the boat. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like that's why I'm here. Like I'm here. I'm a, I'm a fight for those, those kids. Even if, if the parents are hesitant to, because I know that they feel they've got something to lose, but something I learned a long time ago is that, um, your being out and vocal is a protection because, when you say, well, this is happening and this is happening, when that retaliation comes, you have more legal recourse than if you had stayed silent and just let it continue to happen. Like what, what is, what is the possibility? Like what's really going to happen if you stay silent, it's just going to continue and possibly get worse. So um, I don't even know if I answered the question. I was just talking. Y'all. Just... Oh, that's, you're supposed to just talk. You go ahead and do what you're doing. <laughs> You're no, wrong. About, um, gonna fight no matter what. I didn't even want to fight. Like I didn't. I. I'm not even. Like at home, I don't even consider myself a fighter. I write things and I do things and like issue briefs and it's like it's normal. And here, I feel like so radical when I would never describe myself that way. Like I just want to have nice things, and so I want my children to have nice things, and I want y'all children to have nice things because they look like my children. Like that's it. I don't really want to fight. I just want y'all to act right so we can have nice things. Right. <laughs> Yeah. But they, they think, turn it into a fight. Like that's really yeah. what it is because you're saying, hey, dude, just let, let you know that we're not getting our, our free appropriate public education. And it's a, uh, well, okay. Like, it's not like, how can we come together and fix that? Exactly. It's a pushback at every, every turn. It's like, all I'm really asking you to do is provide us with the access opportunity that you provide to everyone else by law that is all i'm asking for uh, we're not asking for anything radical one mlk worksheet put these two children in <laughs> and i would have left you alone <laughs> <laughs> just be civil <laughs> right just can you acknowledge their humanity please yeah anyway that's wild well, I want to ask a question. Um, so y'all do a lot of amazing work with, with families on the ground. And um, I, wanted, I wanted to know, what are the tensions that exist between low-income and middle-income Black parents? So like those tensions that might exist between families of different socioeconomic status, though they share the same, uh, you know, they're Black. Do you, do you see this on the ground? And how does it look like? Oh, this is, this is a hard one because I feel like Black parents want the same thing for their kids. Like we, no matter what your income level, you want your kids to be successful. You want your kids to do better than you do. I think we we all want that. I think when it when you look at um, time as a privilege, I think you, like when you look at salaried versus hourly, when you look at, I mean, I mean, when you look at how schools 
gauge parent uh, involvement, like like they think it's like showing up in person, right? You may not. That's all privilege, right? So I think I think we all want the same things. I think that, and I'm gonna admit this as Round Rock Black parents, I don't think we do enough to make sure that we are including everyone, like that we are including the whole village, because I know I'm middle class black woman. And I'm like, hey, we're having this meeting, come here, come here. Like I'm reaching out to my networks, but I don't know, like, and I, and that's, I don't ask like anybody's income level. So we could be, and I don't know because we don't talk about it, but uh, I, I think that we could do more to make sure that we are pulling in as many people as we can to the conversation and making sure they're getting the same opportunity and that, that we are being flexible enough to where they can attend or, you know what I'm saying? They, they can get the information, like even if it's at a later date when they're able to, because um, then that, that just leads into a whole conversation of capitalism that y'all ain't, I'm not ready to have right now, but. <laughs> oh, we need to bring you, we always love those conversations, so. <laughs> I agree, Natasha, that I think we want the same things. I think a lot about, um, I mean, my, a lot of my, my friends before I moved are like, private HBCU grads, Jack and Jill slash some version of an image development program before, right? And so I think a lot about uh, the tensions and my friends who are ha who have younger children think a lot about, I think what you were hoping to get to, or, or, or at least what your questions look like, what you were hoping to get to, this idea of like, we're gonna move out to the suburbs for better schools. We're going to like put our kids in private schools. And they think a lot about that. Um, I think for me, if I'm going to say attention exists, I think it is in that sometimes in the black middle class, we can get to a place where we feel like we've arrived somewhere and we can sometimes um, in wanting to assimilate or we can, we can fall into assimilating into kind of the same systems and the same thought practices that uh, the white folks who had the means fell into, right? Like white parents will all move out of a district and form their own district with their own money and their own means, right? Um, and so I think that sometimes we can look down on or lose touch with where we came from because we're all only a generation or two away, right? From lower income brackets. Um, and again, so we have this conversation in HBCU circles a lot where it's like, there is a generation of Black HBCU graduates who graduated from the institutions, but wanted their children to go to Ivy League institutions, right? They, wanted, they, they didn't want their children to only get the Black education. Um, like my parents tried to talk me out of going to one because they were like, your test scores and your SAT and your uh, GPA, like you should go to Harvard. And I was like, it's actually cold up there. I will not be doing that. So my daddy and I had agreed on Emory in Atlanta and I went to Emory and uh, went to campus to like sign and say, yes, I'm coming. And it was so far from downtown and reasons why 17 year olds choose a college, right? I wasn't gonna be able to go to a Falcons game and the Eagles were gonna be playing on the schedule in the next couple of years while I was in school. And how was I gonna get there with no car? I cannot go to the school where there are no black people and I can't get to the football game, right? So, um, but we think a lot about how at, at a certain level of success or a certain level of income, Black folks can get too good for Black things and Black institutions and Black schools. Um, so to me, I think that if we're going to say attention exists, it's right there, right? It's around like middle-class Black folks thinking we're too good for the, the hood or the lower class experiences versus, um, and then that being very alienated for folks who were like, you're supposed to be my people, right? Uh, I wrote about in my book, I, I was really fascinated how in, um, Minneapolis, the upper middle class black folks were still, or Milwaukee, I'm sorry, not Minneapolis. Milwaukee, the upper class uh, black folks were still living in the hood because they felt it was safer to be with people who look like them than to be in the rich suburbs with people who like work going to treat their children well. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation when I compare it against like my friends in Birmingham who are like, nope, we need to move out because our daughter needs to go to the best private schools and she cannot be subjected to this, right? Um, I don't have a solution or an answer. I'm just kind of rambling, but that, that's kind of what I think about a lot when we talk about this idea of tension. 
That's that's amazing that you mentioned that Milwaukee example because um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you heard of Dr. Mary Patillo, but um, she wrote a book called Black Picket Fences, and she's one of the four most greatest thinkers uh, when it comes to the black middle class. Um, that's where she grew up. She grew up in Milwaukee. She considered herself uh, a black middle class family, but they lived in the hood. And um, she talks about how those experiences, and she also talks about a lot about the tensions that exist between middle income and low uh, income black folks as well. So, I mean, everything that you said correlates so much with her lived experiences and her educational research. So uh, thank you all for that. Yeah, Ricky, I was just actually thinking about that. I was like, this is perfect to, to hear that. Um, and then to hear how you kind of interrogate that autumn. So thank you again. So you all have in ways talked about this um, in these, these past questions, but thinking about the kind of social and cultural considerations that are important for Black families in suburban spaces. Can you talk to us about those, particularly when you're choosing these spaces that may not be that may be predominantly white or um, just navigating those spaces? I feel like we both talked about this idea of like the burden of only, right? And not wanting our children to be the only ones. I think that's the same thing I think about when I think about schools and when I think about um, really everything is not, like you want better for your children and our society associates better with whiteness, partially because they get more resources, right? Like there's actually a quality difference in the resource allocation for black and white families. But then you also think about, I was having a conversation earlier today about like this idea of, I was talking about college students, but even for my children, like not having to defend the fact that you belong in a place while you're trying to figure out who you are is so important to me, right? Like I don't want my children to have to defend that they were the affirmative action pick while they're trying to figure out who they are as humans, right? Um, so some of those considerations or, or some of those things are constant considerations when you think about social spaces and think about educational spaces and this idea of balancing like a desire for quality versus the burden of onlyness or otherness um, and kind of the psychological toll that either could take. Yeah, the, I wrote down some notes on this question and you basically hit them all. It's really like, yeah, the code switching and the protection methods and how we don't speak up in you know, fear of retaliation, how our children cannot show up as their full selves unapologetically, y'all can't talk, unapologetically. Like, I I feel like we are like having to advocate for basic rights, like the, the basic faith, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's real. I mean, you know, I, I consider myself and my family to be a black middle-class family as well. And a lot of the things that y'all said about moving into suburban spaces and just thinking about some of the social and cultural considerations, we went through that process as well. And like, we, we moved to the east side of Round Rock and everybody who knows segregation, how it works in Austin, black folk live east of the highway. And that trickles down into the suburban areas as well. Pflugerville, Round Rock, Huddle, Manor. Um, well, Huddle is pretty much exclusively east of interstate anyway. But when we moved into Round Rock, um, into the neighborhood that we lived in, we were happy to see that there was three other black families on the, on the same block that we lived in. That was ecstatic for us. We were like, yes. And then um, we have everybody else is pretty much white. And we've had our share of issues with some of the white families who live there. Um, it was my son's birthday and uh, we don't have any sidewalks in our neighborhood, but somebody parked a little bit too close to their grass. And instead of them coming to our house and saying, hey, can y'all move your car? You know, I'm trying to grow my grass. Y'all parked a little bit too close. They called the police on us. Right. Like simply for that. And you just like. I don't know, you're just around these situations in which people are afraid to talk to you and you you assume it's because of your racial identity, right? This is a white person calling the police on us. And they just, you just talk about those microaggressions that it, that it, that it is just being Black in a suburban space in a space that people are not used to Black families and uh, Black people being and existing. It's a struggle. Um, so I don't want to take too much of your time. I want to get into this last question, but uh, I really want to hear more about um, some of the, oh yeah. So can you talk about how black parents are collectively trying to address some of the social and cultural considerations that we were just talking about? Um, and specifically, I would love to hear about, you know, the Round Rock Black Parents Association um, joint that you're doing, Natasha, and, you know, the other associations that you're dealing with as well. Um, so I kind of want to give a little bit of context um, Round Rock Black Parents Association was formed, I think, in 2015. 
um, after a 14 year old student, black male student was choke slammed by a white police officer. It's on YouTube. Like there was a student who filmed it, it went viral. And the situation was that the, a white student had taken something from a black student, it's like his earbuds or something. And he was like, give them back, give them back, right? So it was like a kind of an altercation. The police officer called over the black student and that's when he was like, he tried to like, I don't know what was being said, but on the video, you can see him kind of like push away, like I'm leaving, like you're in my face. Like, cause he kept getting close to his face. And then he grabbed him by his throat and choked him. And I still have trouble watching this video today cause this boy, he's a child, he's 14 and he's small. And he puts him on the ground and he's got his knee in his back. It's, it is a triggering video for me, but that incident happened. It made national headlines and black parents, uh, I feel like for the first time organized and like started showing up in spaces where they didn't show up before, like the board meetings and saying, hey, you know, what's going on? We need accountability. And it wasn't a one-time thing. Like it kept going. Like they were like, okay, you're not answering us. We, we still need to know. And we are in a district and which I, I currently work for, um, but the outcomes for black students in this district have been dismal. Like they've been on a TEA watch list for over 10 years. It's, it's dismal. Um, and parents were, were showing up and organizing. And this, this SRO, the student resource officer, ended up being cleared of all, all charges. Said that he was working within his scope, right? So, and I think that's, that was kind of like, black parents were like, no, well, this can't end because we live in a district where um, parents on the west side of the district, the white parents showed up um, angry about class rank, saying that their kid couldn't get into UT because their rank was too low. And within a board meeting or two, class ranking was gone. We're showing up saying, hey, you can't choke us. And it's still continuing. Like, I, I'm not sure if um, if y'all saw, there was another viral video that made national headlines again when another SRO um, body slammed a, a girl, a black girl at Cedar Ridge High School. And we organized around that too. So. And it's, we don't just organize around when things go bad. Like we're here to create spaces for black joy also because I am an advocate of black joy and know that it's critical to our survival, you know? And um, I, uh, um, we did a, the first HBCU fair in Round Rock, which is when you think about it, Round Rock IC hosts the largest, um, college fair in Central Texas. But when we asked them like, hey, how many HBCUs are you reaching out to? They were like, what's an HBCU? So it's like, okay. So we we threw one together, I believe it was in 2019, right before the pandemic happened. But um, I think we we just continue to to galvanize and bring black parents together because I think for so long we have, um, we've been silent in these spaces because all the things that we've just talked about, right? Like we're trying to make it, right? We're in this suburban area and and I don't wanna just make it, right? Like Patina Love, Dr. Patina Love, it's like we wanna do more than just survive. Like we want to thrive and we deserve that. So I think as an organization, we continue to partner with other community organizations. We partner with Educators in Solidarity with Undoing Racism of Round Rock and anybody who will have us, we're partnering with, we partner with Round Rock ISD when they, when they will let us, you know, and like we just recently did um, Black History Month videos and uh, the district pushed them out to the campus, the campuses to show on their broadcast. And uh, it was so nice because I edited those videos and so like I spend all this time editing, right? And then I hear the music and I'm like, what y'all listening to? And I was like, oh, that's my videos. Like, it's nice to like see my kids, you know, learning from things that, that I help create. Um, but yeah, I just, I think our ultimate goal in Round Rock by Parents is to, to change our student outcomes, especially in a district where 
Um, oh, and this is the data autumn, the little bit of data that I did pull together. Um, <laughs> we have um, our black students are, uh, what is this, three, three times more likely to be an ISS, four and a half times more likely to receive OSS, and four times more likely to go to the DAP for discretionary placement, meaning they didn't do, like they didn't bring a knife, they're not wielding guns, this is discretionary placement, meaning a principal said, you've acted out too much, so we're sending you, or like, this is a principal decision. And we are 9% of our district, but 26% of discretionary placements to the DAP, which it's inexcusable. And I think that accountability um, needs, it needs to happen. And I think Round Rock with parents exist to, to hold people accountable and to also make sure that other, other black parents or any other group of parents of color can organize the same way that we have. And I know like Autumn reached out to us when she got here. Um, I don't know, I think Kiana made the connection. Y'all, Kiana Pitts, she's a force, a force. Yes. Um, she won't say she, anything uh, so she's like a force and then she like shrinks away <laughs> yes Silent she's working force. on it though okay her, yeah she her voice is she's coming out with it but she made the connection with autumn and then autumn you know moved on we've made connections in leander and, and we just had a meeting this week with parents in san antonio who are looking to start a black parent organization um so i'm i'm really excited as to where this is going I very much enjoy all of the things that both of you are doing to address these issues, uh, specifically like the emphasis on Black joy um, and bringing that to these spaces and not necessarily always try, trying to, to survive, but to thrive. Um, and again, you all have been amazing um, and really enjoy your perspectives. I don't have children now, but when I do, I'll make sure I get your numbers, find you. Uh, to do all of the research uh, that you've done, Autumn and Natasha, um, just to think about all of those things. And it seems like even though sometimes as a Black parent, from just hearing from all three, including you, Ricky, your perspectives in terms of for labor, that that labor is a labor of love. And in some ways, it still brings joy um, to your everyday living. So again, just want to thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you again to our guests, Autumn and Natasha. What questions do you have about home ownership, education, and other issues facing the black middle class? Email us your thoughts as a voice memo or a note at blacklivestexaspodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode focusing on housing and population movements. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your community. Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. It is produced and hosted by Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe, with additional production and editing by Mariah Gossett. Our music is by Upper Reality. Until next time. One love and hasta la próxima semana. Peace.